You're listening to Bloom in Tech with David Bloom. This podcast sponsored by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Bloom in Tech. I'm your host, David Bloom. We always gather together before this auditory fireplace to trade tales of the collision of media, entertainment, and technology. Today, I got to be a little meta uh, in this episode with Duncan Trussell, a longtime, very interesting, very funny guy who has been doing a podcast for 13 years. The occasion for our conversation was one of the more interesting and out there concepts and projects I think I've, I've heard of in a long time. It is also perhaps a mark of this surreal period that that project is one of the most interesting and engaging escapes we have. It, co- it uh, cross-pollinates Trussell's deeply philosophical podcast conversations with lots of notables with the day-glow bright dystopian animation from Adventure Time creator Pendleton Ward and Titmouse Studios, who done all kinds of interesting projects. Midnight Gospel's eight-episode first season debuted last week on Netflix. Its heady visual and intellectual discursions might be just the brain-bending food for mind and soul that you and I need to navigate the isolation, fear, death, and disunity now raging around us. He talks in our conversation a bit about the surreal quality of having conversations that seem normal while all this crazy stuff is happening just outside the window or in the uh, episodes of the program, The Midnight Gospel right to the characters as they're talking. It's kind of funny. The podcast interview style produces this intimacy, as you all well know. It creates this conversation in your head. That's why people love them. And it gives chance a chance for celebrities to go on about things that they really care about. Well, he takes that notion and then overlays it with this amazing visual style from Pendleton Ward. It's absurdist juxtapositions of speech and image rather improbably remind me of Nick Park's Oscar-winning 1999 animated short, Creature Comforts, and the succeeding TV series that he created in Britain and the United States of the same name. In those shows, he matched the anodyne observations of everyday Britons on all kinds of stuff with animated, stop-motion animated zoo animals, and to often surprising, quite poignant effects sometimes, but also quite funny. It was wonderful stuff. I strongly recommend you track it down. In the Midnight Gospel, the conversations are considerably more twisty and intellectual, but no less surprising. The protagonist, a fellow who wears a large hat and and (laughs) takes on a new form on each of the episodes, transports to a different simulated planet. He is the producer and recorder of a space cast. And as he goes to this new planet, he uh, interviews a denizen there for the purpose of uploading their conversation to the universe. The resulting deep conversations from out there notables such as Ram Das, Damian Wayne Eccles, Will, the musician Will Oldham, Raghu Marcus, Jason Love, and Dr. Drew Pensky, among others, dive into a lot of heady stuff about spirituality existence, life, mind-altering drugs, and mind-altering meditative states, among so much else. These conversations drawn from Trussell's longtime podcast, Duncan Trussell Family Hour, are interwoven with Ward's delightfully over-the-top imagery that would please Peter Max of Beatles Yellow Submarine fame and much else from the 60s and 70s to no end. 
In the first episode, Dr. Drupinski is not only a medical doctor discussing issues of addiction and drug use and the fact that there are no good drugs or bad drugs, but also he is the president of the United States during a zombie invasion. As Clancy and uh, President Pinsky fight their way in a rather distracted fashion through waves of zombies, Pinsky holds forth on his belief that there's, quote, no bad drug. As he says, it's about how we use these chemicals that each have a variety of negative and positive effects. Eventually, uh, at the end of the episode, and this is not a big spoiler alert, but bear with me, the zombies, quote, win, unquote. But it turns out being a zombie isn't so bad either. And then Duncan goes back to upload his space cast, and away we go to episode two. I'd like to note here that I discovered while reviewing the show that episode four features Trussell's conversation with Trudy Goodman of Insight LA, a prominent Santa Monica meditation center. Goodman is a noted speaker and Buddhist meditation teacher. Not incidentally, she is a close friend of my wife and attended my wedding. In the episode, her character is called, and I find this amusing to no end, having known Trudy for a couple of years now, she's known as Trudy the Love Barbarian. The Goodman conversation, mostly about life, death, and practicing to listen to others, is set in a Gothic horror backdrop with a vengeful would-be lover bent on ending the world. And yes, in a time when the pandemic has killed more than, well now, 70,000, I think it's 65,000 Americans, hearing Trudy the Love Barbarian talk about forgiveness and actively listening to others is a good thing. Trussell also just interviewed uh, Trudy and her husband, the prominent Buddhist author and speaker Jack Cornfield, for his ongoing podcast, so you can check that out too. Both episodes nicely encapsulate how the show manages to find a through line, connecting these deep conversations about uh, really challenging and fascinating topics with Ward's wacky animated worlds in a way that actually works while also being frequently funny and consistently engaging. As Trussell talks about in our conversation, knitting together those very different things, something that was created for a podcast, and knitting it together with animation and creating an, a narrative through line between the two things is really the, the, the key here, how you balance that out. I found that pretty fascinating, too. And it was a little scary for them because they're creating something that isn't like anything else. They did a three-minute proof of concept for Netflix. Trussell was scared it wasn't going to work, but Netflix bit... And they began digging through his nearly 400 episodes of podcast interviews for material. Uh, Ward and the animators at Titmouse, which is known for Big Mouth, Metalocalypse, I can never say that, and the Venture Brothers, also spent a lot of time guiding him through the very different world of animation production. As he put it, they're very compassionate with him uh, regarding being a neophyte brought into the Bohemian Grove. But they did create a distinctive and uh, always evolving world. As he dips into these different simulated worlds, it creates a really interesting uh, opportunity to go over the top in different ways in each episode. Pendleton Ward first broached the idea of the show to Trussell in about 2013 after he'd become a fan of Trussell's podcast and then appeared on it. And he was an early fan who really knocked Trussell's socks off. He's like, oh my gosh, Pendleton Ward likes my stuff. And it happened despite what Trussell said was a dopey question. You'll hear about that in the interview. <laughs> As he talks about uh, asking Ward if he uses drugs to create his out there visuals. I love his response. It's, I don't use anything. And whereas, uh, as Trussell said, if somebody asked Trussell that, he'd say, well, which month? Though Trussell goes on to uh, carefully 
qualify his terms, it's likely that you won't need those drugs to become an adherent of the Midnight Gospel. And you may want to check out Duncan's podcast as well. It's fascinating stuff. Anyway, here is my interview with Duncan, and uh, I do strongly recommend tracking down the Midnight Gospel on Netflix. The story I wrote for Forbes about this was one of the most heavily trafficked stories I've written in a while, so clearly people out there are interested, and it is definitely well-timed for this time. Anyway, uh, we'll be right back. Hi, Duncan on the line. Hey, hi, David. How you doing? I'm doing great. So um, I, I think I'm uh, mostly just trying to reconnect with this strange universe that I'm already in after watching the strange universes you keep going to in your show. <laughs> and uh, the collision of all that is uh, probably more than my little tiny brain can quite handle uh, without benefit of, shall we say, mind-expanding uh, pharmaceuticals. But I'm, I'm not much for that, so I'll just have to rely on your show to do what it can. I wish this I'd is... recorded what you just said. I'm recording it. That's a compliment thing. Well, it is. It's pretty trippy stuff, but it's really interesting and such a, an unusual take on things. I want to understand, you have done a podcast yourself that is sort of the genesis of some of this stuff. And then you got mixed up with that crazy guy Pendleton Ward <laughs> and got into animation, went even further down the rabbit hole. Is that is that how it kind of worked out? Tell me the process of where you started and then how Pendleton got involved and got you to here. And that, and that's okay. Yeah. Well, you have completely grasped it in, in your description. That's exactly what happened. I, I, I was doing a podcast, my podcast prior to the podcast boom or whatever you want to call it. And Pendleton was an early listener of the, of the show. And so he reached out to me at one point. And it was really mind-blowing then because podcasts mm. were still somewhat punk rock. You know, is that yeah. they were, you know, the, the name podcast. But we're talking, we're, we're really talking 1976 punk rock. We're not talking 1981 punk rock or, or 2001. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Where they had, they had beat up clothing because that's all they could afford. It wasn't that they went to some expensive boutique and ripped up the jeans there and then bought them for $400. It was, God I only you. have torn up jeans. <laughs> yes. So. Exactly. That's it. It was lo-fi punk rock. And we were doing, and, you know, we were doing it in the, in those days just because it was fun to do and it was weird and people were listening to it. It had a, a feeling of kind of like pirate radio or something. So yeah, yeah. that, and, and those, those were great times. And when he reached out to me, it was somewhat shocking just in the sense that he's, he, at that time he had already been creating this incredible show adventure time and yeah. so it was a wild email to get and i think of it in terms sometimes like in those days podcasting was like throwing messages in bottles from whatever your little subjective island was out into the internet and like to get a response from an artist i really respected was just pow powerfully wonderful and so we became friends and then 
he left Adventure Time. I don't know how much time had passed since he had left Adventure Time, but at some point he asked if I wanted to get coffee with him because he, he had had an idea about a way maybe he could turn my podcast into a cartoon. We had coffee and we talked for a while. And then at the end of the coffee, he was like, you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I just don't know that I have time for this right now. And I was like <laughs> trying to play cool. Like, no problem, man. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but he then about a year later reached out to me and said, what, why don't we, why don't we talk about that idea again? And the idea at that time was, was just a, a something, an epiphany, I guess he'd had, which was if you yeah. take podcast dialogue and put it to something like Indiana Jones, then yeah. it pr- produces this comedic situation and, and something of a, of a poignant situation. You know, because as, as you, we're all experiencing right now during the apocalypse, not this, this is literally the apocalypse, but during times like this, you know, you don't just talk about this, you know, and that surreal quality of having conversations that, that, that just seem sort of normal while simultaneously, you know, just outside your house, there's something floating in the air that could potentially kill you. You know, it's a very poignant it, it, make, it, it sort of amplifies the experience of human conversation. So that, and that's, that's midnight gospel. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that you talk about this this way, because it just occurred to me that it's a little bit like, did you ever see Ardman animations work where they years and years and years ago, when you were just a wee boy, where they took conversations with sort of everyday Britons or English people and chop them up and use them as the dialogue for their claymation and these animals in zoos hanging out yep. or whatever. And brilliant, brilliant, sometimes very poignant stuff and really unusual. And it just occurred to me, this is a little bit like that. This is far trippier in some ways because those were really Claude and Jane sitting in their parlor watching uh, the Beeb on the telly and talking yeah. a bit about life as opposed to Drupinski or uh, Annie Lamott or any of these folks getting way out there and, and lots of different ways, really smart, interesting ways, but, but wildly different than Jane and Claude. But there's so it's, this it's vulnerability in both of them. You know, it's, it's yeah. A, it, yeah. something in that, something in the, just the, the podcast interview style produces this kind of intimacy that, yes, I think is is one of the reasons people love them. It's you know when we when we're limited to ten minutes, you know, or six minutes or whatever on a late night show or something like that. How do you really get into the heart of something with a person or get to know them? I mean, you know, it takes time, and so that produces this sort of moment, or hopefully more than one moment during a podcast conversation that I think people really connect to. And yeah, I, th- I think that that show you mentioned sort of just the natural way, like the way I'm stammering right now, or the way people just naturally talk, not quite reflected when we're watching uh, TV, you know, or and right. it's certainly not animation because, you know, these are, it's all scripted. Whereas a podcast right. is unscripted. And I, I think that somehow weaving animation and podcasting together in the way that, Penn and I did, and also in the way. What was the name of that show again? I have seen it. It's beautiful. The claymation show. Uh, 
God, I'll have to because you know, I literally just thinking with you was like, oh, ding, I made this little connection. So I'll have to go dive into IMDb. It's a and perfect Nick it's, Nick Park. It's, it's Nick Park. So that's that's all you gotta do. It's Ardman. It, yeah. It just it's something about it, like the the combination of the two produces these moments of, of real sweetness and yeah. uh, that that you might not normally find in an animated show or in anything really. I'm hoping with podcasting in general that more people begin to explore ways of doing that kind of alchemy of, you know, transforming that medium into the visual form in a way that's more than just like showing like animated characters in front of a microphone. Yeah. It's an interesting question, I think, because we see, I mean, I joke that along with esports, that podcasts are a 20 year overnight sensation, right? (laughs) Yeah. And you know that as, as intimately and painfully as anybody, you know, that they've been percolating along for many, many years. And all of a sudden people went, oh, podcast, that's interesting. Let's do stuff with that. But you're talking about these hybrids, which take it to the next stage. We saw, you know, Homecoming and, and how that had gone from a podcast, a limited run podcast to uh, an HBO show with Julia Frickin' Roberts, We've seen people like Wondery and Gimlet get involved in sort of how do we create these things that we can use, try them out on the podcast level, and then maybe take them up to a live action show or documentary that we can make even more money from. But you're really talking about a very different kind of thing that mines that intimacy, that sort of deeper connection, and then gives it some sort of visual component, uh, hopefully, in this case, just totally bent over the top Pendleton needs to just cut back a little bit on the intake I'm just saying oh uh, well let me you know if I may respectfully correct you on that yeah uh, <laughs> this is this is one well, so when I I interviewed Pendleton at the time I didn't yeah. realize how tough it was to even get an interview with him because he doesn't do many of them but he agreed to be on my mm-hmm. podcast with Jesse Moynihan who did the background art one of my first questions I don't know if it was on mic or off mic was that which is like whoa how what what psychedelics are you taking like what combos are you using to make this beautiful show adventure time and his response was none i I, I don't and i remember when he said that feeling like i don't know i I don't know how to put i thought ah damn i bet everyone asked him that question and everyone you know we all think to achieve that whatever that is that he has that mystical ability to to sort of produce such beautiful trippy art you've got to be high all the time and um Mm -hmm. that being said when people ask me what substances were you on when you were making midnight gospel my response would be like well which month of production yeah (laughs) you know because i love psychedelics and i've had circumstances uh, different needs you know you want to have a good trip you got to pick your you got to pick your train so you know i get that's right (laughs) and 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 and, you know i really you know i i'm out of the psychedelic closet so to speak i I don't feel and i and i hope more people do start you know walking out of that closet because the data that's coming in right now from the the lifting of the prohibition of even the study of some of these substances is showing something we already knew which is there does seem to be some therapeutic benefit especially when paired with psychotherapy you know so for for me i think that you know used responsibly smartly and with a a therapist they, they can be quite wonderful substances and definitely could be art, art amplifiers. 
Well, absolutely. I mean, there's been lots of research suggesting, for instance, very helpful with PTSD, very helpful with people facing terminal disease. Those are somewhat extreme situations, but even in more normal, people facing far less imposing challenges in their lives, it can have some significant value. And you're right, that psychotherapy component to help guide it, the the, the, the more controlled setting. I mean, Timothy Leary and, and back in the day, Ram Das before he became Ram Das, and those guys all discovered the importance of set and setting as yeah. the sort of uh, magic elixir for for uh, a successful trip uh, you know that that i don't think was well understood even even then by frequent practitioners necessarily uh, they got to find out the hard way that bad trip happened because they didn't didn't take care of set and setting but you're saying you know, we are seeing some loosening up of that I, I think it is probably going to be useful whenever we get around to that amid everything else that's on our plates right now well, what yeah, is it for what sure i mean what, what this is a traumatic yeah moment in human history and i think any any tools that we have uh for dealing with uh the various traumas that people are going to have when we finally come out of our homes they're going to be wonderful but yeah set and setting a hundred percent so this is a very different kind of setting though so i'm curious from your standpoint they 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 created uh, pendleton did his side of the work with the, the cool imagery and all that I listened to Dr. Drew for years on Loveline and you know, less so in his reality show iterations. But you know, going back to when I first came to Southern California, they were on KROQ here in Los Angeles forever. And yeah. I always, you know, in late night stuff and, and heard him and I got a very good idea uh, and, and, and interviewed him a couple of times back then, back in the 90s. I interviewed him a couple of times on various things and had a good sense. My family, my parents are both therapists by training uh, oh my mom uh, was too training yeah so my mom's an msw still in practice at 78 my dad is he eventually evolved to become a unitarian minister but obviously there's still a therapeutic component of that but he was a drug and alcohol counselor and ran men's groups for decades and all that stuff blah, blah. so i'm around that therapeutic space i've been around that therapeutic space which means of course i'm really screwed up you know that being said well we're all screwed up (laughs) (laughs) yeah Exactly. But but there's an awareness of that. And Drew, hearing that first episode and him talking about some of these issues that he's talked about for many, many years, minus the whole zombie invasion part of it. So did you take, in, in that particular example, did you take uh, direct content and then layer in additional stuff that he voiced over? Or how, 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 how did that work as you take the source material? Because I'm guessing that while you two were having your podcast recording, there was not a zombie invasion. In a, in <laughs> you a are 100% universe. right. About I mean, it's just a bit You're of right. a stretch. It's just an example of uh, me making an assumption. I don't want to be wrong, but I'm glad to hear I was right. About it. <laughs> you never know. What you're uh, tuning into here was one of the great challenges of the show, which is that you know, here you have this conversation with, with Dr. Drew about marijuana. That con- that particular conversation, or about drugs in general, I believe that was the first time I interviewed him, and I came ready to get in a fight with him, like an argument, mm-hmm. because I, you know, I, I imagined he would have some sort of authoritarian viewpoint on drugs, and I was pleasantly surprised to find that he... It's just a scientist who, a doctor who, you know, on his desk was a stack of medical journals. And I realized that he was, he's just a data-driven person. What you're listening to there is me tr- thinking I was going to arm wrestle somebody mm. 
and then realizing that I was with somebody who like understood drugs way better than I do and also has a deep respect for addicts and a and a love for them yeah. and for the predicament that they find themselves in. And it was wonderful. That was a just a wonderful time that I had with him. But to then take that conversation and make it make sense in a world where he's the president and zombies are attacking required yeah. this delicate, delicate balance between plot within the animation, which is if you make too much, in other words, if there's too much of, of what's around the other corner happening, that pulls the viewer out of the conversation and into the animation. But mm-hmm. if there's not enough what's around the other corner, then the podcast becomes soundtrack to right. psychedelic animation. So figuring out just the right places to glue the dialogue to the animation became one of the great challenges of the entire series. There were really scary moments because the the way Netflix and and a lot of st- these streaming platforms buy shows is they don't do a trailer or a, I'm sorry, a pilot. Right. They just yeah. order the series. And right. They go straight there's to series. some usefulness to the pilot. It, it's, yeah. a, it's a test. It's you discover what works and what doesn't, but we had to, you know, we had to take this three minute animatic that Penn had made a proof of concept thing that was funny. And then we had yeah. to sort of start unfolding that in, in, making sure that this actually would work, you know, and there were along the way, there were a lot of moments, I think more so for me, because this is the first time I'd ever worked in animation where I had this like scary feeling of like, Oh my God, maybe this isn't possible. It worked mm. for three minutes, but for 20 minutes, can we really glue these two things together in a way that is actually going to work? But you know, Penn has been in animation forever. Titmouse Studios is incredible. Mike Mayfield, the director. Uh, they're the yeah. best, man. That is the best collective of artists I've ever encountered in my life. And they were very compassionate with me regarding my me being a neophyte who had sort of just been like, huh. you know, essentially brought into the Bohemian Grove uh, by yeah. Pendleton. You know, knowing nothing. They were so, they're like, no, no, you see, this is, they, they, every step of the way, very reassuring in an authentic way because they knew in their minds they could already see what it was going to be. Whereas for me, it's like the first time I saw the ultrasound of my baby, you know, you're like, that's a fish. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's a squiggly fish or lizard child. Yeah, 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 exactly. And that's early animation. And if you don't, have any experience in it, then it can be really, it's because I've, you know, worked in comedy for my, you know, my adult life. And that's a whole different thing. We know if a joke works, you can look at it on paper and, you know, you know, by just uh, saying a thing in a certain way can make it funny. But with animation, just a slightest movement of, you know, an eye or a hand or, or something in the background can put a joke in italics and suddenly it works, but you're not going to see that until the you know later stages of the process. As a comedian, there were moments where I was just like, oh shit, man, I don't know. I don't, that joke's not yeah. working. And then they yeah, would right. reassure me, it's going to work. Don't worry. And then it did, hopefully. Interesting. I, I, I've written about Titmouse. They just did their uh, five-second 
day, they were doing a couple of screenings that every year, and I love this little tradition they have for the last eight years. Every year they give all their animators a day off to go work on their own project. And then they take all those dozens and dozens and dozens, I think they had 140 of them this year, dozens of little brief projects and screen them back to back to back for the yeah. staff to show what everybody's doing. And this year, the third of those screenings got interrupted by this little pandemic we're having. And so they said, well, let's just put it on Twitch. And it got such a nice turnout that they turned around and said, let's do last year's on Twitch too. So that's kind of fun. There's really some great stuff in there. But uh, they also got involved in this other crazy project that came out of nowhere. And it was taking a um, Dungeons & Dragons game that has been live streamed on Twitch for years now and using that to create an animated story that was built out of those games played over you know every thursday night for multiple multiple months to create the story arcs and then they, you know all the people that were playing in the game are all voiceover artists so they knew they knew to call up and they called up Tim mouse who's doing the animation and now they've got a two-year a two-season deal with amazon so yeah uh, that's one of the wild things i i played dungeons and dragons with pendleton and chris pronowski way before the show was any, there There was no show. I didn't ever think I would. Yeah. I didn't know that we would be doing a show, but I played uh, an afternoon of Dungeons and Dragons with them, which is really fun. Yeah. And then, and had you played, that, had that, you played before? Oh yeah. When I was, when I was growing up, uh, I yeah, used me to too. play with my friends and yeah. It was funny man. when I, I talked to those, I talked to those guys. It was funny cause I talked uh, to the, the critical role guys. That's the name of their the group. And I say, well, you know, my son does this stuff and he designs uh, tabletop games, RPGs for fun on the side. He works in TV. But uh, I did it when I was a kid in high school. And I said, oh, cool. So so what edition did you play? And I said, there was no edition. What are you talking about? We barely had Dungeons and Dragons. We had we were happy to have both, you know, so that was the original. You, you were playing basic. <laughs> That's what they yeah. called it, right? Basic. Yeah, I was like, I don't think they even called it basic. It was just dungeons and dragons they didn't get to advanced and basic they just had dungeons and dragons it was like 1976 or wow. seven somewhere there oh my god you you were playing dnd during the satanic panic yeah all that stuff yeah yeah absolutely. Wow. that was when people they they that was you know there's a movie there's an entire movie about dungeons and dragons during that time because people were convinced that there was absolutely. some connection to the occult and that yeah like yeah. I think, isn't there an interview with Gygax where he says that that actually helped? All of a sudden, it, it got really popular. <laughs> it it <laughs> helped promote the damn thing, which is the most hilarious thing, right? And, and there was also you probably may have heard about you know there were kids who were using they were doing kind of a live action version of that, doing D and D in like sewer tunnels or you yeah. know uh, the the underground tunnels like in a university or something like that and using that as their dungeon equivalent but they were they they weren't using little you know inch high figurines they were using themselves and my son does live action role playing now nowadays and then they got lost or something happened and that you know it's because they went into like actual not just under the university but play with places they shouldn't necessarily have gone it was all kinds of stuff like that you're right it was that whole craziness back in the late 70s and then we found new things to get worried about you know so <laughs> yeah, right. Herp, herp, yeah. Herpes, Man. that was a big one, you know. And then, oh, it turned out AIDS made herpes look like uh, maybe not not that big a deal. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's it's yes. Yeah, so, God, I was, you know, 
I was, as this pandemic was happening, I was thinking back to when I was a kid and we were afraid of killer bees. Remember oh, that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Killer bees, the <sighs> Africanized honeybees, you know, were coming up from uh, Central America and they were going to kill us all. So, Those and, the poll- and cross and cross pollinate us at the same time. So, that, that should <laughs> yeah. actually be. In season two of Midnight Gospel, the killer bees who also pollinate the humans and make them something else. Just take that to wherever, whatever weird place Pendleton wants to go with. I'm just. I hope you mean that because really, that is exactly yeah. the kind of idea that we want. That's such a funny idea. Is a killer bee apocalypse? That's the funniest idea. Yes. People fleeing Africanized bees. Yeah, and trying to Driving talk. Priuses. Yeah. Wow. Africanized bees hey, driving Prius. If we get a second it. season, you might have to come to our writer's <laughs> summit. I, but see, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't augment. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm like Pendleton, but not as creative. I uh, sort of float in this weird world all by myself. So, but I have a lot of source material. So, uh, being old. Uh, so, how you guys had you? to figure out how to. I'm 58. You ain't old. That used to be old. It's not old anymore. No, I'm in good shape for what it is. I look pretty good, but, you know. Um, I, I noticed after I had a car accident in November and it reminded me that there are some limits, uh, even if you're holding pretty well, there are some physical limits here. So, you know, there you go. Yeah. That, you know, that, that's, that's, that's the contact with truth. That's it. Yeah. I had testicular yeah. cancer and I smashed into oh. that reality sooner than I would have liked. So how long is this process of creation with Penn, the process from doing the podcast, get this cool email let's have coffee come back a year later do it mean, what was how long has that process been i've been scratching my chin on that one i actually tried finding the first email i got from them. i couldn't because i archived all my google emails but i'm pretty sure this must have my interaction with him must have started just around 2013 and so oh, and then the action the time that we really started working on the show, the time when I started contacting my agents and saying we wanted to pitch something, that was probably three years ago, something like that. And then um, the the show itself took, I believe, and again, I, you know, especially these days, I'm really foggy with time. It, it feels like the show took about a, a year or so to make. I, you know, I can remember I, at one point Pendleton, he had all these great, he basically took me under his wing because he, he knew I'd never done animation. He took me aside and he said, Duncan, right now everything seem, is gonna, it seems really slow because we, we haven't really started. But, he would, but what's about to happen is that things are going to go so fast that this is going to be over before you even know it. You know, there's going to be points where it has to, where it's done. And it's done. That's it. You have to say, okay, we're finished. Hearing him, the way he was explaining it to me, I could just see like, wow, what a wild learning curve he had been through with Adventure Time and how many times, I don't know how many episodes he had probably wanted to keep going and couldn't or, you know, but the wisdom he'd gained from that and the ability to articulate that, not just to me, but to everybody was so profound and uh and and i think that's sort of what helped make the show 
what it is, which to me is very, very special. And I, I feel, I think it's okay for me to say that because I was one little tiny piece of that. It, it went by in a flash. It, it was just a, a second and suddenly it's over. But oh, so I would say if you want to start with when the podcasts were recorded, we're talking 2013, right around there. So how long did you do the, how long did, how long did you do the podcast? Uh, well, going? the DTFH started right around 2013, 2012, like at the very end of 2012, I believe. It's like basic D&D. <laughs> yes, basic podcasting. That's right. Yeah. Basic podcasting. We would record right into a, into, we were using GarageBand in those days. And by we, I mean me. I don't know. I'm referring to myself as a plurality. So you guys have had to figure out that sort of delicate balance between the podcast conversation and the trippy animation. As you say, there's a push and pull attention to make sure that they're letting them concentrate on the conversation and still giving them this eye candy, crazy thing that's unfolding that has nothing to do with the conversation and somehow also something, maybe a lot to do with the conversation, right? Yes, yes. That That is... One, to me, that, that's one of the mystical aspects of the show is that certain symbols would just emerge that I, I don't know where they came from. I, you know, I, I study meditation with a, a, meditate, well, with a few different teachers, but one of them is his name's David Nickturn. He's in one of the episodes, and mm-hmm. uh, he was a student of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. You know, in that particular episode, I ended up being a, an octopus sheriff and you know i that was just an idea i don't even know where that idea came from but you know an octopus has eight eight limbs and then he started breaking down of course the eight you know the eightfold path then the number eight in buddhism and the idea of you know the octopus as uh, you know representing the sort of sensory apparatus of a human and it just ended up being this accidental mystical symbol that perfectly fit in with what we were doing but that i didn't intend at all and so there were these, these moments like that that happened where it was almost as though some group mind formed i've talked to different people about it and they say when you get enough people collaborating together these archetypes just appear on their own like you can't mm. keep them out. They're just going to be Jung, there. You, Carl Jung would probably be all over that one, right? I, yes, I, I would imagine so for sure. Yeah. That and so there was, there's moments even now where I'm watching it and seeing these symbols that appear, and I know for sure I didn't say, "Oh, let's let's add that in exactly at that moment when people are saying that because it represents some Gnostic concept or something." Mm. And so then I have to think, well. Who did it? Was it Pendleton? Was it one of the, you know, hundreds of people working on the show? I don't know. Was it just the, you know, the connection between all of us? That's what I think. That's what I like to think anyway. You know, and because yeah, right. we're and 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 um, I think that's what Pendleton. One of the things Pendleton is really a genius at doing is uh, empowering everyone he's working with in a way that creates this sort of mystical cohesiveness that mm-hmm. is, you know, he's very good at throwing out nets, so to speak. And you never, and pulling in really, really weird fish. And that's sort of what, <laughs> what, what I learned working with him is, is 
how important it is to make sure the people you're working with know that that you really, really respect them as artists and really are truly open to any idea they might have. You know, I think the the people working with us felt that. I know he he gave me that feeling every day, which was great because you know otherwise he could be a pretty intimidating figure. Yeah, and and I find it interesting to let that trippiness unfold as you have these have had these conversations, which I'm sure go back a few years for the podcast. My wife spent time with Ram Das and is uh, close friends really? with uh, Jack Jack Cornfield and his wife Trudy. Uh, particularly with Trudy, who's down, who she'd done some work with Trudy's uh, Insight, LA Insights Center down here. So, did you see her episode? I haven't. Oh, I haven't gotten there yet. Did they send you the screeners? They, well, yeah, they gave me access to digital screeners. So, yeah, oh, I hope I don't think like I'm through. scolding you or something. Just show, yeah. watch. I, I think it's one or two or one or two. Just please show your wife that. That's one of my favorite episodes of the whole show. Trudy's amazing. Well, she's one of my wife's closest friends. So. No way! You know what? She's a great voice actor. Um, she is. We, she she's very relaxing. <laughs> but we live yeah. about a mile from the Insight, from LA Insights uh, Center or whatever. They were at our wedding last some last August. Uh, Congrats on your wedding! To, That's so cool. I yeah. love them. I just interviewed them. I'll have to tell her that Trudy's in in the show. I love animation. Find it often really interesting as a way to expand the way we see things. And had little idea what to expect when I listened to this. Then heard you talking to Drew, and then uh, the second and third episodes. And I was like going to her. You know, you should check this out. This is a lot more brain food. It's not like Bugs Bunny though. Let's be clear, Bugs Bunny, one of the great philosophers of all time. Uh, <laughs> what? It's not Bugs Bunny. It's not Chuck Jones doing Bugs Bunny. It's it's a whole different kind of animation, and that that knitting together is really interesting in topics that she would find interesting. And you can guess because of her connection with Trudy that it would be. But knowing that Trudy's part of it, I'll have to get her get her hooked up on that. So, so Duncan, what's next for you? You've, you've, you're doing some interviews for this. You're doing, uh, you're hoping, I guess, for, uh, you've, got, you've got how many episodes of podcasts that you could mine for content? I mean, is it all? 300 plus. Uh, 300 plus. Okay. Now, is, is the idea that largely all of it is going to be library content that you already have that then, then you transform? That's been in the last, you know, over the course of making the show. I continued to do the podcast and there were these moments where I, during the conversations where I had to really practice some mindfulness to not get distracted by this sudden thought of like, Oh wow, this would be a great scene for if we, if we do another season of the show. And that's sort of a tricky thing. Just personally, whenever I do a podcast, I try to enter into it with zero agenda outside of connect connection but yeah we yes if netflix wants more of these and it will continue to stay true to its form i imagine that being said when we were in the early phases of developing the show i i spent a long long time building the world of the chromatic ribbon out because we both pin and i we we didn't want to just sort of lean into absurdity you know which is a lazy thing that you can do while simultaneously sort of imagining that you're you're being artistic when it's just you know you're not working hard enough 
So I knew that if, if we get into the, the pixels of the show, so to speak, if these simulators, I have mathematical calculations for how they work and what, what happens when they malfunction and the history of them and the history of the chromatic ribbon and, uh, you know, sort of the lore of that world. Just like D&D, I went deep yeah. into every single thing that I could think of regarding that world with Pendleton. And, and, and it's a, a really beautiful place, crazy place, the chromatic ribbon. And so um, uh, I, I want to show people more angles of that place uh, than we showed them in the first season. I'm excited about that. Yeah, you know, envisioning that. Um, I, there's a great podcast that I heard between Ezra Klein and N.K. Jemison, who is the black female science fiction writer who was the first human of any description to win three consecutive Hugo awards for a trilogy, a science fiction trilogy. Each of the books won the Hugo award for wow. best novel. Uh, so she's a, she's a butt kicker, but she got on there. It was a fantastic conversation because they were talking about world building and how before she starts to write one of her, she's written a couple of big trilogies and plenty of other stuff, but before she can write, she has to write the world. She has to create the world and then write a story that goes through that world, a storyline, a narrative line that goes through that world. And, yeah. you know, her touchstones are things like Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel uh, that I thought was interesting. And, you know, for me, those touchstones, I mean, I, I love the conversation, but a lot of it sounded very familiar to me. And it was sort of like brain bending for for Ezra Klein, who's very smart, whose work I really enjoy, but he didn't even think about, oh, here's the geology and what that means, you know, but if you read yeah. John McPhee and Assembly in California or, you know, Annals <laughs> of a, a Distant World, you know, you understand about global, about tectonics, which is a key part of the trilogy that won all the Hugo stuff and how the earth works and how you build civilizations and how, you know, access to resources shifts the way things work and what does that manifest in terms of the culture and how it operates and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Really fascinating stuff. But if you if you play a video game like uh, Civilization, uh, Sid Meier's Civilization, you know, groundbreaking stuff, but it's all about this thing and this thing and this technology and this access to resources and the ability to have a military, but not too much of that, and some investment in culture and how having a religion means can lead to things like uh, being able to write and then having history and yeah. being able to, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All that gets very complicated and complex and fascinating. And that's what she has to do to create a world. So you were doing something of that for that this anime show. Yes. And, and I, and, and, and I, you know, I was going at some points into psychedelic visionary states because, you know, when, when I'm, I like to imagine in, you know, on a woo level, well, you know what? I got to interview Ram Dass a few times and mm. one of my favorite interviews with him was with Roshi Joan Halifax who is a, uh, you know, Zen Roshi, uh, who, where Ram Dass has this sort of, I guess you could call it a theistic spirituality, the concept of the uh, eternal soul. You know, Roshi Joan Halifax is a Zen Roshi, you know, in the moment, and they've been friends forever, but the, the, the two conceptualizations of the identity could seem like polar opposites, and they're best friends. They're sitting at the table at Ram Dass's house, and he just said, you know, this is my imagination. And she goes, finally, you admit it. After all these <laughs> years, you, you admit it. 
And it was such a great moment. And then I realized they've been having this back and forth, this playful back and forth between nihilism and internalism for the entirety of their friendship. But uh, I really love Ramdas, and I particularly love that he was very forthright in saying the imagination is wonderful. The imagination is where I meet Neem Karoli Baba, where I am with Maharaji. Similarly, when I was building the chromatic ribbon with Pendleton, um, who gave me a great range to, to work with this world, I imagined that I was not just making this world, but I was receiving the world. And, and it was a wonderful process. I, and it's a, a very odd thing to, to have inside of me a feeling of homesickness for a place that, at least in this dimension, we haven't discovered. I don't even want to say it doesn't exist. <laughs> you know, but it's a very yeah. odd feeling. That, the world is so such a big world, and I spent so much time cr- creating it that I have fond memories for it. I spent a lot of time. So, you know, people, some people are going to watch it and think, oh, when they're saying this or that, that's just, you know, made up gibberish, but it's not. Any, any slang that gets used has a meaning behind it in the show. Any, like, you know, for example, one of the curse words on the chromatic ribbon is, is crex or crexing. You don't want to get used once, but the word comes from the term crex, which is when a universe a multiverse simulator starts malfunctioning, it starts sweating this uh, sort of vile, stinky, pungent ooze called cracks. And cracks draws these things called cracks flies, which are these stinging flies that live in these zones called the wobble zones, which are places where these simulators have essentially had a Chernobyl, have, have, have melted down. And so... When uh, you're having problems or when you're having a string of uh, bad luck or something like that, then you might say something on the lines of like, it's been a crack day. Or if you're upset with someone, <laughs> you cracksing motherfucker. Or and then one of the slogans on the ribbon is Out- where there are crack flies, you'll find an outsider because people who don't know how to use their simulators uh, which is a big problem on the ribbon, their property is always swarming with cracks flies. So, you know, it's the one word that you'll hear in the show that's connected to a very deep history. I could go long. I could go yeah. on for hours. Yeah, yeah. No, that's flies. fascinating. That's, that's, that's fantastic. I mean, but that, that's a sort of deep diligence and, and respect for the material you're creating that I think, probably is vital for something that might have some long-term potential. But I have to say that it's been a crex day. Sounds like a t-shirt in the making. That's just me. <laughs> yeah. Well, his neighbor says my crexing daughter, he's really upset yes. with his daughter because she's too compassionate right. regarding right. the simulated beings, you know, like, cause that's yeah. a, on the ribbon. That's a big point of, controversy is you really aren't supposed to think that the beings inside the simulators feel because if you if you think that then you're not going to be able to harvest their technology and you know destroy their civilizations uh so it requires a dehumanization of these simulated beings and so this is out soon and you'll uh find out whether it's crexing debut or one that will inspire crexing t-shirts so (laughs) 
<laughs> well, fingers crossed, my friend. It's really nice Thanks, meeting Dave. you. And, uh, and, and do uh, pass on that episode to your wife with Trudy. She oh, absolutely. killed it. Like, she's, we, she's amazing, not just as a teacher, but as an actor. That's fantastic. I'll tell her that. That'll, she'll get a kick out of that, and I'll make her watch whether she wants to. But she'll want to watch for Trudy, no doubt about it. Jack Cornfield, by the way, has a fantastic column in yesterday's New York Times. He talks with a, a writer for the Times, and I think given your predilections, you will love that conversation. It was actually two conversations turned into one, but you should find it. It's about finding some peace in the middle of all this craziness. And Jack, of course, is being very Jack. And it's got some pictures of Jack throughout his life with the Dalai Lama and uh, other folks and as a college kid with a guitar, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's a fun, fun call. Find that on the New York Times. I'll read it. And, you, you know, I know, this is not to plug my own podcast. I'm only saying it because I just did an interview with Jack and Trudy and uh, it's, nice. it's, I don't know. It's a wonderful conversation about how, you know, to interpersonally deal with like, you know, just marriage when you're in quarantine and yeah. it's a, they're really good at talking about that. So it's great meeting yeah. you. I, I, I hope we cross paths one day. Maybe you'll, y'all can make it out to one of these, uh, Ramdas retreats when they start happening again. All right, that's our show. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate you tuning in. I really love that conversation with Duncan Trussell and certainly suggest you track down Duncan Trussell Family Hour and if you haven't already. And absolutely tune in on Netflix to The Midnight Gospel. It'll stretch your mind in some fun ways. I really enjoyed that show. I really enjoyed my conversation with Duncan as well about the creation of that and so much else. So if you like what you hear, please rate review, share, and subscribe. You can go on the site that both syndicates and hosts my content, anchor.fm, and leave an audio comment if you'd like. Or you can track me down on LinkedIn at David L. Bloom or on Twitter at David Bloom and connect with me that way. Love to hear from you. Love to hear what you think about uh, the Midnight Gospel and what you think about some of the topics they get into. There's some pretty heady stuff. And if you want your brain expanded, it's a good place to start. In the meantime, I hope you're staying safe and sane. I love you all and need you all to stay on this planet and in one piece. Please take care out there. It's a scary time, but uh, we're all in it together. This is David Bloom for Bloom and Tech, over and out. You've been listening to Bloom and Tech. I am your host, David Bloom. Thanks so much. And our podcast has been sponsored in this episode by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Take care, everyone.